This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for February 26th. The federal government tables long-awaited legislation that targets harmful online content, particularly aimed at kids. We'll hear from the Minister of Justice and the Power Panel reacts. Plus, Canada's big city mayors are in the capital laying out their pre-federal budget demands. The chair of the Big City Mayor's Caucus tells us what they want to see from Ottawa. The Liberal government has taken a second go at tackling harmful online content. The new legislation tabled just this afternoon seeks to better protect both children and adults on the Internet. It proposes establishing a digital safety commission, a five-person panel tasked with enforcing new rules around harmful content, as well as a new digital safety ombudsperson. The bill also seeks to amend the criminal code to crack down harder on hate crimes. Arif Rani is the minister behind that. He's the Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, and he joins me now. Minister, uh, thanks for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. So this this bill emphasizes measures to protect children. It promises a, a, a digital safety commission and a digital safety ombudsperson. Walk me through that. If I'm a parent who doesn't like something that my kid sees, how do I go through the process and how does this make it better for them? So the message that I have for parents, and I include myself among them, I've got two uh, youngsters at home, is that there's a lot of uh, scary things out there that are on the internet. And what I find troubling is that there's more rules for my son's Lego than there is for the most dangerous toy in my home and in every home in this country. And that toy is the screen that your child is on right now, whether that's a phone, a tablet, or a computer screen. And we are changing that with this legislation because protecting kids is fundamentally what this legislation is all about. There is a duty to have content removed within a 24-hour window of content that would exploit a child sexually. That is critical because of what is happening right now online is that there are sexual predators and pedophiles that are seeking to reach out to our children, unbeknownst to us very often. And what I find troubling is that for a long time people have said to me, well, Minister Vrani, isn't that a problem with parents? Shouldn't parents be addressing this themselves? Why do we need to have more aggressive rules about what is happening online? What I say to that is that, just like every other parent out there, I tried and hopefully successfully have taught my kids how to cross the road, looking left, looking right. But I also know that there are rules of the road. There are stop lights, there are stop signs, there are red lights, there are speed limits. Right now you can empower your kids to your blue in the face about the dangers that lurk online. There's not enough rules for what's happening online. Look, uh, With this law, we are changing that. Yeah, no, take, taking down child sexual content, uh, exploitative content, revenge porn, you know, uh, you know, unauthorized leaks uh, of private, intimate material, no-brainers uh, in, in terms of it needing to be addressed. But I want to understand the process. You're creating a digital commission. You're creating a digital ombudsperson. How do they work? Like, do, do I complain to Meta? Do I go to the digital ombudsperson? Do I go to the commission? How does this framework, how do you envision it working to make things safer for people? Okay, so, so the second component of the bill, and I'll explain it, I'll explain it for you, David, is that we're also empowering the adults, including those parents. So they've got different avenues now. They've got an avenue where they can raise the material by a flag or a signal to the platform itself, or they can raise it with the new digital safety commissioner who then raises it with the platform. Mm-hmm. So there's harmful content that it, it goes beyond what you just mentioned with respect to The commissioner to or the ombudsperson? Sorry to... The, the commissioner. Okay. The, commissioner. the ombudsperson is meant to be a bit of a concierge, helping people navigate the system, figure out their rights, figure out their avenues and their recourse. The complaint would be raised with the commissioner. But you can flag the content, you can complain about the content. That requires a response on the part of the platform. The platform has to address content that could be used to bully a child, mm-hmm. content that could be used to induce the child to self-harm. 
harm. We know exactly what happened. You probably covered it, David, in BC two months ago with yep. that little child yep. who was sextorted. We know that he had nowhere to turn and ended up turning on himself, and that child is no longer with us. It's kids like that that are motivating us to take action. It's kids like that that have to be top of mind for the platforms now, because when they're forced through this legislation to file a digital safety plan, that means they're going to take measures to reduce the risk of child bullying, of child self-harm being propagated on their platforms. They've got to show how they're moderating that risk, and if they're not meeting the, their own terms, they will be held accountable by that new digital safety commissioner, including with very hefty fines, the likes of which we've not seen in Canadian legislation. Oh, okay, so those fines are up to 6% of global revenue, which, yes. in the, which is massive money, as we know with these companies. So, Minister, like, what is the threat threshold by which Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg could be have their company fined to such an extent by the Canadian government? And how do you enforce it? Like, what would they have to do? It just appearing on their platform, I assume, is not the, the threshold. It's whether they take it down timely fashion. How does it work there? So the takedown relates to those first two categories of child sex exploitation and the issue of revenge porn, the, the sharing of intimate images without consent. The aspect of sort of ensuring that the risk is reduced across the other five categories categories or relates to um, the Digital Safety Commission. What I would say to you is that impo it's important in terms of that question, David, because it's not the Canadian government finding people, it's the Digital Safety Commission making that determination. And what we've done is entrench in law a fine that is significant enough that it, changed the economic, it changes the economic cal calculation. Everyone watching right now knows that what is driving and pri being prioritized by the platforms right now is a financial imperative. What we're saying is that that is no longer sufficient. You must have Canadian safety as important to you as your financial, uh, financial imperative, which is driven by advertising revenue, which is driven by clicks and driven by eyeballs on screens. The status quo is not sufficient. We are asking those platforms to work with us in terms of these digital safety plans or face consequences that can be as high as that 6% of global revenue. It's set that high because these are large international mm -hmm. entities with very large amounts of revenue. We need to set it at a level that will get the attention of these platforms. So, so but just what triggers the penalty? Is it a refusal to deal with it within the, the prescribed timelines? Is it refusing to take it down entirely? Like, I, I understand some of the other things that are not subject to a 24-hour takedown because they can be a subjective argument around them. Uh, child sexual content, no subjectivity there. Uh, but but what, what is the standard for a fine? So the standard for a fine would be set by the Digital Safety Commissioner subject to the parameters that are in the legislation, but it is failure to comply with one's own digital safety plan. It is failure to comply in the first two categories with the automatic takedown requirement. So they are significant and they are meant to, to ensure that there is cooperation on the part of the platforms. We want the platforms to be working with us. Let me, get, let me, let me be very clear about this, but this is really important to understand that trust and safety divisions are a mishmash across mm -hmm. the various platforms. Sometimes we've seen reductions in people that are working on things like content moderation. What we want to ensure for Canadians is a uniform playing field vis-a-vis -vis these platforms that are scoped in and that are covered by the Digital Safety Commission. And we believe that will do so in a manner that ensures the safety of our kids right. and the safety of adults and the power of adults. The other thing that's really critical to understand, David, is that people talk to me about freedom of expression. I'm duty-bound to defend that and always will. It is a charter-protected right. I swore an oath to uphold the Constitution. But what I also explain to people is that right now a lot of what you put out to the world and also what you receive in terms of your feed is being decided for you. 
not by a government, but by a private company. That mm. private company is making decisions behind closed doors. We don't know what decisions they're taking or why they're taking them. That will change by forcing them to provide a digital safety plan that exposes and provides transparency about the decisions they're taking that affect your and my free speech. But you're bringing in this digital services commission, uh, digital safety commission, excuse me, that, that you'll be appointing, uh, not you, the government will be appointing. So, so how quickly will that be in place? And what is the the, the, re, the criteria by which you're going to pick people to take on this regulatory oversight and enforcement role. So the first step is we've tabled the law today. We're going to have parliamentary debate about it, go through committee, ensure that if there's tweaks that need to be made to improve the bill that we are doing that, we get it through the Senate, we get it to royal assent. Then comes the work of implementing the actual commission. There are components in the bill that will take place quicker in terms of changes to the Canada Human Rights Act, changes to the Criminal Code of Canada. What's important is that in terms of sort of the people that staff that commission, those people will be critical. It is not lost upon me that we need to not only have this legislation, have this new commission, but we need to have Canadians have confidence in that commission. One way that we're going to do that, David, is critical, is that the selection of who is the chief of this new commission, a very important role in Canada, that will be decided in the chamber right behind me. A House of Commons vote will be held right. on who that commissioner should be. That will be also voted on in the Senate. We want parliamentarians to weigh in on such a significant role because all Canadians need to have confidence in that person via their elected representatives passing a vote in their favour. So, so, Minister, this, this is an online harms bill, but it's also a criminal justice bill. You're creating a standalone uh, hate crime uh, provision in the criminal code. So, for example, you referenced the, the London attack on the Ufsall family. That could be prosecuted as a hate crime from the beginning rather than taking into consideration at sentencing. So I understand that uh, aspect, and, and you spelled that out uh, clearly in the news conference we carried earlier. What I, I'm less clear on are some of the criminal code amendments for things like uh, promoting genocide, uh, the hate speech provisions with sentences to be carried up to life in prison. Now, you said earlier that's to give judges a broad range, that the five-year maximum was too limiting. You want to be able to give them uh, up to life in prison. But what do you envision as a sort of a speech offense that could lead to life imprisonment. And I'm, I don't say this to, to defend the right to advocate for genocide, but I'm trying to understand the criminal law implications of, of what you're proposing here as legislation. Well, I'm not going to speculate about specific context. That's for an individual judge to determine. But let me just give you a few sort of aspects to your question. The first is that judges have a range of sentencing, right? Yep. And what we're doing is, is we're saying that the current maximum end uh, of, of the sentence for an individual who could be uh, found guilty of advocating or promoting genocide is five years if they pre proceed by way of what's called an indictable offense. And what we're saying is that that limit is not high enough. We need to denounce at the highest level the, the actions of someone who would be promoting or advocating genocide. It is one of the most heinous crimes known to mankind. I think that's important, particularly in the climate that we are now in. Uh, the second component I would say to you is that it's important, David, that people understand this is not something that myself or some, uh, some individuals of the Department of Justice are sort of uh, conceiving sort of on the fly. What we're talking about when we talk about genocide is established jurisprudence on genocide, the same way there's established jurisprudence on what constitutes hatred. This is up in terms of questioning about what hits the level of hatred. We are entrenching a definition and codifying it, a definition that already exists in the Supreme Court case law from a decision called Whatcott, which right. dates to 2013. That's critical because it talks about detestation and vilification, which is a very high standard. There will still be expressions of, that are insulting, hurtful, and offensive to you and I that circulate. That is what the constitutional protection on free expression protects. It does not protect 
ta- talking about violence and violent speech, which is expressions of detestation. Uh, I, I understood, and I understand the importance of the justice system in denouncing certain acts as unacceptable society and sending a clear message with a penalty, but you must envision something behind a life sentence, or how did you come up with this notion that it needs to be up to a maximum of a life sentence? Why not 10 years? Why not 12 years? Why not 15 years? To go to a life sentence, we, we apply that to things like murder, you know, terrorism charges, for example. Like There are very specific offenses that we, 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 we envision for something like that. What did you envision as you drafted this bill to put this new penalty into the criminal code? What I would say to you is that genocide, by definition, is, is looking for the extermination of a group of people. Right? And but what's it, the speech? What's it, the speech that and, would lead to and this? What I would say to you, David, is that with respect to that, that is not for me to opine upon as the Minister of Justice. It is for a judge to make a determination that is case-specific. But what I know in terms of what we've done on the extensive consultations on this bill is that we needed different components, a civil component with the Commission. We needed the Canadian Human Rights Act to be amended. And people who can, we consulted with also said to us quite clearly that criminal code provisions need to be enhanced. It also, our provisions also include a new peace bond, which would yep. be available to prevent an individual on a prospective basis from committing one of the hate propaganda offenses or the new freestanding hate crimes offense to ensure that that person is, has to keep the peace and be of good behavior. We're trying to be proactive here in terms of stopping the radicalization and the hatred that we are seeing currently in Canadian society. And these provisions and these amendments will give law enforcement the tools to do just that. Okay, as a final point, I'm hoping you can provide an additional piece of clarity because we've got to let you go. But you, you say you wanted these changes because of what is happening in the country right now. And, and we see the protests sparked by this conflict raging in the Middle East right now. And we do have groups that argue that the, the pro-Palestinian chant of from the river to the sea is a call for genocide. Palestinians would disagree with that and say that is an expression of liberation for the rights of, of their people. But where does something like that fit into this legal framework and, and speech framework you've rolled out today in terms of how judges and, and where you're trying to denounce it. Is something like that what we're talking about here, or is it much greater and higher level than, than, than that particular phrase? So individual determinations will be decided based on the context of specific cases by the, the judge that is making those decisions, David. What I would say to you is that our denunciation of hatred, including the hatred that we're now seeing around the country, is strong and it is resolute. You know that there is a Holocaust denial offense that is entrenched in 319 of the criminal code mm-hmm. right now. You know that at that press conference that I was just at, we had both the National Council of Canadian Muslims and the Centre for Jewish-Israeli Advocacy standing side by side behind this important legislation. Those are the types of people that have talked to me about the fact that we need that peace bond. We need the freestanding hate crimes offence. We need to enhance the maximum penalties for the hate propaganda offences. We are resolute in our determination to see the hatred abate in this country. And more importantly, on the civil side with that commission, what we will do is get right at the heart of that Ovzal trial that just concluded last week which is that the radicalization that people are learning about online has real-world consequences, including the fatalities of Canadians. That's what we have to stop, and that's what we're going to start stopping by ensuring that hatred is being addressed by in the online space to keep Canadians safe. Okay, Minister, there's a lot in this bill I, I'd like to ask you about, so I'm going to invite you back on another day when you have time because there are other components we didn't even touch on in this, but I want to thank you. That's Arif Arani, Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada. Thank you, David. 
Okay, we've got a lot to talk about with the Monday Power Panel. Lisa Raid is here. She's a former Conservative Cabinet Minister. Brad Levine is a former Communications Director for the NDP. And here with me in the studio, Vanda Nakater is a former advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And Rob Russo is the former CBC Parliamentary uh, Bureau Chief. Okay, uh, Lisa, uh, let's start with you as a former Cabinet Minister and, yeah. and a lawyer. Uh, what, what do you make of what we heard there in terms of the regulation of the Internet companies and in particular the changes to the criminal code uh, to deal with hate crime and, and, and speech that in violence and hatred there is so much in this bill david yeah. um i don't, don't think it gives the justice to hot on it i will point to two issues that i see of being concerns and of importance number one is the unleashing of the canada human rights on act on people who are commenting on other people on social media that to me seems to be something that's going to cause a lot of strife in the country. Um, a lot of individuals will now be threatening to take other individuals on social media platforms to the Canadian Human Rights Agency. And you can imagine what kind of bottleneck. Yes, they do say, well, we're going to have a clearinghouse. We'll figure out which ones are important or not. But still, you give that kind of um, power to individuals to threaten each other with some kind of I, I guess formal reprimands. It's gonna it's gonna be unleashed. It'll be really difficult to contain. The other one is I find the penalties area fascinating. How much money the government can um, can impose a fine on the on the online on the online providers? Uh, it's ten million dollars up to six percent of the global revenue and last time I checked Facebook made like 120 billion dollars mm -hmm. last year so it's a pretty stiff fine that the that these entities are going to be thinking about as they determine how they're going to deal with speech and whether or not it's hate or not hate in this jurisdiction finally I'd say one more thing setting up all of these commissions and ombuds offices and entities and human rights, it all costs money. And what I find interesting is that there is a section in this bill that allows for the government to charge the users yeah. for it. So again, interesting to see how this is all gonna get paid for. Is it gonna be that tax on social media? Conservatives will have a lot of areas they can go to to criticize the bill. It's such a big bill, there's gonna be a lot of things in there for people to chew on. Uh, yes, uh, you know, Lisa, you highlighted a bunch of things that I had, didn't even talk about in my rap and which the minister didn't even highlight because there, there is a lot there. Uh, but Brad, in, in terms of new structures, there's going to be a digital safety commission, a five-person organization appointed by uh, the government. We, we don't yet know how exactly that's going to work. A digital safety ombudsperson to advocate on behalf of people who feel aggrieved uh, by content online and a digital safety office that we think, as Lisa said, is going to be a few hundred people uh, funded, uh, they think, on a cost recovery basis uh, from the the internet companies that are being regulated by this, I guess a little bit by how, like how the CRTC and others function to some degree. Uh, but in terms of the concerns about overreach, critics of the government's internet agenda, people like Michael Geis say they seem to have done an okay job here of narrowing it, focusing mm -hmm. mostly on clear and obvious harms such as, uh, well, the content we heard laid out uh, by Jane when, when she was speaking in that press conference about what happened to her little girl. What, what's your reaction to, to where we are with what the government laid out today? Well, nothing, nothing that we've seen so far, um, and I think Lisa's right, there's a lot here. So, uh, w you know, we reserve the right to talk about this uh, for the next few Mondays yeah, as we yeah. learn more about it, yeah. and a committee gets, gets a hold of this. Yeah. But at, fir at first blush, I'm, I, 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 I'm, I'm most struck, and one of the things I wanted to kind of uh, point out is it, it, it's, it's acknowledging and creating a structure by, by which we, we have a five-person uh, commission that's going to help 
referee um, that which uh, so many. That's going to be a very difficult job. The criteria for those five individuals and the scope that they're going to be given, uh, I think is going to be fascinating. I think this is, this is the first time we've seen it since the dawn of the Internet, where actually there is an entity that is actually in charge of stick handling, uh, refereeing uh, to a certain extent as to what constitutes um, out-of-bounds uh, content and what should be then done with it. Mm -hmm. the, I think the second thing is, 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 is for the first time, these platforms, like the social media platforms, the Facebooks and, and, and the like, actually have now a duty to, to reduce harm. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if the teeth that, that, the, that the various uh, commission and the ombuds are given have enough teeth to actually make them uh, actually follow through with that, with that duty. To date, uh, I think, you know, the, the notion of pulling things down within 24 hours. Um, I, I find it interesting that we're looking at international, both Australia and Germany, who've had the 24-hour the, the pull-down um, uh, provisions in the past. We're not going to have that for all yeah. content, but we're going to have that for some of the content. That'll be interesting to see if Canada can actually enforce that which Canadians can access uh, and to see if that has to, If it does, I think those two elements are game changers. So, so Vandita, on that, capacity seems like it's going to be a real challenge here for the government on this. I mean, companies like Facebook have tens of thousands of people, you know, working in content moderation. Uh, what is the government going to have to deal with these complaints and, and to handle what will inevitably be, I, I, I mentioned, a substantial volume on this? Yeah, I mean, we'll think we'll have to figure out, like, we'll see how it rolls out. Mm -hmm. um, I think for something, this is the first time we've seen, as Brad said, since, like, the creation of social media platforms, but this is long overdue in the sense that, you know, we have seen the increase of hate, you know, misinformation, disinformation. We've seen the ex sexual exploitation of children. So it's something that I think if you wait for perfection... It won't happen. And we'll continue to see the same social, the breakdown social discourse. You'll see the increase of hate. Um, and, you know, one life is too many. And I think we have to start with the first step. And then we'll have to see how the government chooses to rule the rest of it out. Yeah, I mean, Yvonne, there's no question there's been a regulatory lag uh, to deal with these problems. But uh, th this is... Um I don't want to say it's less ambitious. That's not the right word, but it's more narrowly focused yeah. uh, than, yeah. than earlier attempts at this. And, and the content that must come down immediately is indisputably yeah. wrong, and it's not on speech. Um, so what do you think of the balance they've tried to take there? Because we saw last week, you know, Pierre Polyev suggesting this could lead to the banning of the Diary of Anne Frank, for example, and this comes nowhere near anything like that. So, and I, you know, I have been part of this as it was created, like when, when we were thinking about it within the government. So I would say... Prior to leaving government. Prior to leaving yes, government. Right. So I would say, um, you know, this space evolves. And as we learn more about it, as the government learns more about it, you learn how to tackle it. And, you know, we have seen other allies and we've, and they've been speaking to stakeholders to figure out, you know, you don't need to just also make this happen. You want Canadians to believe it, and they feel that this is the great step, the right step in the right direction. This type of bill has the ability to be subjected to misinformation. I'm sure that's happening already. Sure. Like, I am very rarely on social yep. these days, so I don't see it. But I get those you know, links from people saying, I'm sure there'll be you know, questions from the far right about attacking the freedom of expression over and over again. You see Minister Verani. Iran sharing that and saying this is not meant to attack or limit freedom of expression, but is meant to target and tackle hate. So I think this does two things. One, it, it, it deals with the most egregious parts of hate and, and exploitation that we see in the public sphere and the increase of it, especially you know, as a mother, I worry about how yeah. it affects on my children. But also, in a way, the Canadians can take it in and feel reassured that this is not government overreach, especially in a time where, because of also social media, there's a less public 
trust in these institutions. Rob, what's your, uh, what's your headline from this today? Well, I'm, I'm waiting to see if we're going to see something like we saw 10 years ago. When Lisa was in government, uh, Peter McKay as justice minister brought in the first, uh, one of the first attempts to deal with online hate. And um, it was a good moment for parliament and for government. All parties essentially got together. There were amendments suggested and it pretty much passed with all parties support. Mm -hmm. It ran into some problems in the courts, but uh, um, no one can say that the situation with online hate and online exploitation of children is better now. It's much, much worse. So I'll be interested to see whether or not there's that good faith effort, because right now we haven't seen the good faith effort. Um, we, we saw, I, I think, one of Mr. Poiliev's weaknesses, his reflexive tendency to go for the jugular, uh, before he even yep. saw this, uh, go after... Um, Trudeau personally, uh, and now we know that Trudeau is not the arbiter of this, uh, yeah. and and we and we know too that Anne Frank's diary wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be banned. So I, I'm I'm waiting to see whether people will make a good faith effort. No one can say in the last ten years whether uh, or that that uh, for instance hate crimes haven't spiked. Uh, fastest growing crime, uh, in one of fastest growing crimes in Canada the last decade has been anti-Semitism. This will go some ways towards dealing with it. Can the Conservatives actually stand against that? It would be very, very difficult for them to do that. But it's a couple of things here, right? It's an online harms act, but it's also a criminal justice act that amends right. the criminal code and a couple of other things that aren't exclusively the realm of online harms. Certainly the promotion of genocide, incitement of violence. You know, this is not something we see only on social media, right? So no, and there will be no end of uh, problems with the legislation that will require amendments. It's massive. Uh, but let's see if people make a good faith effort. I'll be watching that. Okay, Lisa, I wonder if I could just get a, a quick thought from you, because uh, the minister has just gotten into the chair, and I want to go to, to Minister Varani uh, very quickly. Uh, just what you think might be the issues the Conservatives could seize on here. I know you mentioned the roles of human rights tribunals, for example, and the complaint process there. Yeah. I know that has been a bugaboo uh, for, for a lot of uh, you know people uh, on the social right, the political right, for, for quite some time now. What, what other things do you think that might be a challenge here? I think the challenge is going to be that the duties are being placed upon these companies. These companies are risk averse. The fines are heavy. They're massive. Canada is a very, very small market and they may overact and they may just deem a lot of stuff that you don't anticipate as being hate as being hate. And that's where you get into the question of whether or not you're going to have a curtailment of expression. There'll be people who will be locked up because the death definition of what somebody deems to be content that's not acceptable from somebody in California may be a little different than somebody sitting in Nova Scotia. Okay. Uh, look, I want to thank you all for your patience tonight and sticking around. Thank you, uh, Lisa Ray, Brad Levine, Von Cotter, and Rob Russo. Thanks, Dad. So a group of Canadian municipalities are in Ottawa with a message for the federal government. They say if the feds want to build more housing, there needs to be bigger investment in local infrastructure. The municipalities are crying for help, saying we need help here because we, we can't continue the way we are without infrastructure money. It's great to build houses, it's always better when the toilet actually flushes. Uh, and that's, that's where we're very concerned. The Federation of Canadian Municipalities is in the capital city laying out their 2024 budget demand, saying they are also facing challenges in affordability, homelessness and climate change. Mike Savage is the mayor of Halifax and chair of the Big City Mayor's Caucus and he joins me now. Mayor Savage, good to have you back. Nice to see you again, David. So you've renewed your request for infrastructure money uh, in, in the upcoming federal budget. We are getting signals that the government is going to try to veer towards at least a, a, an effort towards fiscal restraint. Given those constraints, what do you need to see from the federal government to show that they've heard you here? 
Well, the, the Feds, uh, the Prime Minister indicated last year that we'd have a new infrastructure plan, so we want to see the rollout on that. It's obviously an important thing for us. We have 60% of the infrastructure in the, in the country, and you know, in a country that's growing as rapidly as it is, um, and providing revenue to provincial and federal governments, municipalities don't have the taxation mechanism to keep, to keep, uh, keep up with that. So infrastructure is really important to us, for sure. And with the push on housing, of course, is going to put a lot of pressure on you to have like Correct. sewer and all, all the hookups and everything that people need. But so like, what, what kind of order of magnitude are we talking about here on an annual basis? What are you looking for? Well, I mean, I'll tell you what it costs for the, an average housing unit in Canada needs $107,000 of municipal infrastructure. My first house didn't cost $107,000. And now that's just municipal uh, infrastructure. And, and we need a lot of houses in this uh, country. And the infrastructure is being paid for by cities. And cities are not getting the benefit of sales tax, corporate income tax, corporate taxes, income taxes. So there's a lot of requirement for this. And we all want housing. We support the growth of Canada. We just need to make sure that people have a place to live when they get here. Okay, but, but again, what are we talking about in terms of dollar amount? Are we talking about a $200 billion program, a $10 billion program? Like, what, what's your order of magnitude? And, and what's the yeah. role for the provinces in this? Well, so the role of the provinces is very important, obviously. So mm -hmm. we don't have a specific number that we're asking for. Um, we've seen before programs, infrastructure coming in with that. It's not just infrastructure. We need support. Very hopeful that in this budget there will be support for homelessness. Uh, Minister Fraser's indicated that uh, publicly that the housing crisis in Canada will not be solved until the homelessness count, uh, problem is as well. For us as mayors, for me personally as a mayor, um, it's, a, it's on my mind a lot. We need mm -hmm. to take care of people who are living on the streets. Okay, but I just won't, I want to get to that, actually, because of, of what's happening in your city uh, uh, today. But, but in terms of uh, an actual formal request to the federal government, have you put in a submission uh, to Christian Freeland saying, hey, this is what we would like to see in terms of dollar amounts, structure, you know, uh, qualifications? Do you have that level of specificity we, we haven't said on the we table? Need, we haven't said we need X number of dollars, but they're very familiar with the, the ask. We have a very good relationship with the federal government. Yeah, you're right. We're getting the signals, too, that the government doesn't want to keep the, keep the taps open on uh, spending. Uh, but you can't grow a city, uh, a, a city or a country if you don't provide the infrastructure that people need when they get here. Um, and so we just think that there's a better way of doing it. There needs to be a new framework that recognizes the different costs that different orders of government have versus the revenue that they're getting from that growth. They, they picked up a lot of the tab uh, during the pandemic. The federal government yeah. did. Uh, so the provinces didn't have to, and you ended up with a bunch of provinces running surpluses while the feds ran a deficit. Does, does that... Need, does there need to be some rebalancing on, on fiscal federalism right now with the provinces coming to the table with bigger pots of money for these things? Well, certainly I think the federal government would say to us and has said to us, we'll support you, but we want the provinces to be there as well. Right. Uh, some of the provinces are. Other provinces don't even want the federal government providing support directly to cities. So we have to have the conversation. We are collaborators at city level. We want to be, uh, we need to be, and that's our goal is to talk to the federal government, but also to all of our provinces and say, this is where we are. How do we fix it together? Does that tension between the, the provincial government and the federal governments on this, like we, we saw them all saying, because the, the housing accelerator announcements have been happening with a rapid pace and the provinces don't like being cut out. And, and we've heard the complaint about that. Premier Euston has said this in Nova Scotia. Do you see that getting in the way potentially? I hope not. Um, we're, you know, for example, we're working very closely with the provincial government right now on homeless uh, encampments and people who are homeless, and uh, the relationship has been pretty good uh, on that front. We all want to support growth. Growth is good for a country, a province, and a city. So we're all on the same page on that. The question is, how do we 
service that and how do we make sure that it's a reasonable and fair way of doing it? You mentioned homeless encampments and you talked about uh, homelessness. Uh, the city said on Friday you, you got a deadline today for people living in five, five homeless encampments in the Halifax area to vacate. Do, do you expect that to happen today and, and where will these people go? Well, we have had pretty good progress since we said that we wanted to have the encampments um, pretty much cleared by the 26th. Uh, and so a lot of people have moved. We're working with the provincial government. We're going in and we're providing everybody an option for a better place to live. It's not necessarily a shelter. In some cases, it's apartment. In some cases, it's supportive housing. That's what we want to do. On the same token, we don't want to go in and, and uh, you know, move people um, unless we absolutely have to. But we do not think that people should live in tents in this country. There has to be a better way. We're working with the provincial government, and I think also the federal government, Rapid Housing Initiative, Reaching Home programs have been very helpful. So, so five encampments, about how many people are we talking about here, Mayor Savage, and do you have enough space for all of them, and will they all take them? We're told by, see, it's not a, it's not a municipal responsibility, so we right. have to work with the province. Um, Minister Boudreau, who's just resigned as the Minister of Community Services, was... Uh, very committed to this. His staff, our staff, have worked. We're told that there are places for everybody. We were, we were not going to move on this until we knew there was a safe place for people to go. In some cases, it could be a shelter. In other cases, it needs something more specific to the needs of those people who don't have a place to live. The, the latest numbers we have from Friday is uh, from, from city staff is that 25 people had accepted indoor sheltering options at a number of facilities. That doesn't seem like that's close to everybody, though, just 25 people. How no. much of a fr uh, proportion is that? Well, it, it's about it's close to half of the people that were living in the encampments. So that's not bad because for a long time the number was going up and up. Mm. And homelessness is not going away as an issue. Um, and, and we will always have, after we have dealt with the encampments, we're going to have people who don't have a place to live, who are couch surfing, who are trying to get by. But our goal is to get people out of tents and inside shelter. And I think the progress that the provincial government and our municipal staff, who've worked really hard, uh, I'm pleased with what I'm seeing. Are you pleased with what you're hearing? Uh, we've heard about these uh, tent encampments in Halifax. Uh, the, the leader of the opposition has raised it multiple times uh, in his commentary and his speeches, blaming the federal government for this, saying that, you know, before Justin Trudeau, there weren't homeless encampments in Halifax. I mean, is this helping deal with this? I mean, what do you think of the politicization uh, of what's happened with uh, the homeless population? I think we all want people to live in a place that suits their needs and gives them a chance for tomorrow. Right now, when you're living in an encampment and you don't even know where you're going to get a meal, you can't even think about tomorrow. I think we all want the best thing for folks who are homeless. And it's not just in Canada. Certainly every, every community, I think, in Canada seems to have big and small, uh, these issues. But it's, you, you see it in Europe and other places, large encampments. Um, it's, it's, uh, it, it's an international problem. My focus is on Halifax and getting people housed in a way that is suitable for them and gives them a chance to have a better life. We've spoken a lot uh, on this show over the last couple of years uh, about your, your work uh, with the Federation of Canadian Municipalities and basically every time an awful weather event hits your city, which has happened with a stunning frequency. But you've announced you're not running again uh, after 12 years. How would you come to that decision? Uh, what, what, what are you going to do if you're, after being mayor of Halifax? Well, I think I'm going to be um, be a guest host on CBC. I'm hoping to do a political show or something. If it's <laughs> sure. Like, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do. In my job, it's difficult to think about the next thing while you're doing this thing. Mm -hmm. So that's why I've announced what, what I, I just, 12 years is a long time. I love the job. I love being mm -hmm. mayor. It's the best job in the world. I'm so honored that people have given me the chance to be the mayor of Halifax. Uh, I love the work, but 12 years is long enough, and I'm going to do something else. What it is, I don't know, um, but we'll find something. They'll give a political show to anybody at the CBC these days. I think that's pretty <laughs> obvious. But just, uh, is this it for you with politics? Like, 
I know, uh, federal election is coming up. Is that a possibility for you, or are you getting out of elected life and looking for something else? What do you think? I don't anticipate being uh, a candidate again. I've been an MP. I prefer being mayor. I think that the future is in municipal politics. I think it's uh, more open, transparent. Yeah, it's more difficult in many ways, but uh, I've had nothing but good times. Even when times have been challenging, I've always enjoyed going into work and seeing if we could uh, make things better for people, and uh, it's been the privilege of my life. Mike Savage, Mayor of Halifax and with the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, thanks for your time today as always. Thanks, Dave. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.